Hi friends, welcome to the Reside Podcast. Here we celebrate stories of individuals creating community in their own unique spaces. I'm Brooke, your host. Cultivating community is something I am so passionate about, which is why I created this podcast. Life isn't meant to be lived alone, and I hope you leave each episode feeling encouraged to make your own space a better place for everyone and ultimately know you aren't alone in your journey. Guys, it's good to be back. For those who don't know, I traveled out of the country last weekend and ended up getting stuck in said country after testing positive for COVID-19. Luckily, having had the vaccine, my symptoms were super minimal, but it's definitely good to be back. You would think that after spending five extra days in Mexico alone, I would have picked up on the language a little better, but that did not happen. Missed opportunity. Anywho, I am happy to be back and happy to finally be releasing episode one of the mini-series on conscious consumerism. So what do I mean when I say conscious consumerism? I've thrown this phrase out a lot. Well, we as humans consume daily. We consume everything from the food that's on our table to the stuff we fill our homes with. Being a conscious consumer means taking a step back and thinking about the impact that our consumption choices have on each other and on the planet. That's our community, right? So for the mini-series, our first guest is Rachel Monroe. Rachel is a journalist with pieces featured in publications such as The Atlantic and New York Times, and she's the author of a book called Savage Appetites, True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. On today's episode, we talk about something a bit different than true crime. We're taking a deep dive into her research on the fashion industry. From her investigation into the industry, Rachel unpacks the significant changes of the fashion industry over the years, that of faster and cheaply made clothing, and the real impacts that's having on our world today. I'll leave the rest to her to talk about, so let's jump into my conversation with Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the Reside Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We connected because I first read your article in February's issue of The Atlantic. Before we kind of jump into all of that good stuff, would you mind just starting off by introducing yourself to the listeners, who you are, what you do, all of that? Sure. So I'm I'm Rachel Monroe. I am a writer. I'm a contributing writer for The Atlantic. And it's funny because I like a lot of the time I write about crime. I wrote a book about women and their relationship with true crime called Savage Appetites. But I've been branching out and, and writing about other 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 versions of crimes, maybe in a way you could consider this. <laughs> so yeah, this is this was like an interesting assignment, a little bit outside my wheelhouse, but um, super fascinating to dig into. In February's issue of The Atlantic, you published an article that took in my opinion, an honest look at the trajectory of the fashion industry. I was immersed in it, um, but you really talk about how it's been redefined over the past few years by ultra fast fashion brands, influencer marketing, you know, all of that stuff. You look at it from both a micro level and a macro level. What inspired you personally to plunge into this topic? You're talking, you know, you said this is kind of your 
first assignment of this sort. So what got you interested in looking into this? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I come to the world of fashion very much as a consumer, right? And not Mm -hmm. as a typical fashion journalist in any way. But I think like all of us, and particularly like all of us who are on social media, I just, I was seeing so many ads for clothes that didn't make any sense to me. In some ways it it Mm -hmm. started there. I was getting these Instagram ads for clothes and dresses and and they all would have like a very the store would have like a very generic name that I it's like is so generic that I can't even remember any of them now and the outfits themselves were also very generic but like really remarkably cheap you know like dresses for $11 and bathing suits for less than that even it was really striking to me Um, It seemed like evidence of some entirely new model for shopping and producing Mm. and consuming clothes that I I couldn't quite wrap my head around like, okay, where, what's actually happening here? And that was, that was sort of the genesis of, of looking at what are some of these changes that have been happening in the fashion industry that have got us to the place where we are now. I think it's interesting when you said you started out in this place of a consumer yourself no one is exempt from like receiving these ads or it's all over the place. I see it all over my Instagram, Facebook. It's just everywhere. It's really inundated the market, like you said. What were you surprised to find when you started digging into this? Oh my gosh, I was surprised by so much. I mean, I think I was surprised in a lot of ways by just coming across these like statistics and studies that made it clear how much the fashion industry has changed just in my lifetime. And I'm not, I'm like an Mm -hmm. old millennial, you know? So uh, my lifetime hasn't been all that long. And, but when I was sort of looking at the way that clothes were made when I was a kid and when I was like shopping, you know, to like for clothes to go to kindergarten or whatever, the world of clothes, how they were made, how they were bought, how they were sold, who bought them, how many pieces of clothes they bought was just like just an entirely different order on like an order of magnitude to what it is now. And that to me, just like the speed of that change. And, you know, so like when I was little, or at least when I was born, most clothes sold in America were still like made in the US and fashion mm. was still largely operating on this like seasonal model, which which we still see right. sometimes in like fashion coverage, right? Like your spring season, your fall season. But that's like how clothes were getting delivered to the mall, right? That's like where you, mm. you usually probably bought clothes at the mall and right. they were like having their back to school clothes and then they would have their summer clothes and people just bought like far, far, far fewer clothes. You would go to school. I mean, I talked to this one sustainability expert and I think she put it really well. She was just like, you would go to school. Mm. I mean, you would go to the mall before the school year started and you would get your like new pair of jeans, like your new outfit. Mm. And that was the shopping for the year. Maybe if it was winter, you would get a new jacket. There wasn't sort of this sense of a wardrobe of something that constantly needed to be refreshed. And Mm. there also wasn't the access to cheap disposable clothes that we have now to sort of serve that appetite. Yeah. And so just, yeah, I think the, the biggest surprise to me was like how how fast and how thoroughly those changes happened. For listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with, we're talking about like fast fashion and even this ultra fast, fast fashion. How would you define that? I think starting with fast fashion, this is this 
trend within the fashion world that starts, you know, like in the 80s really picks up speed, like in the mid to late 90s and, and early 2000s with brands like Forever 21 is a big one that, that we have here in our malls yeah. that I remember from, from oh, my yeah. own. The, the whole model here is like very different from that one we were just talking about this like seasonality mm-hmm. and, you know, smaller number of clothes that are supposed to last with fast fashion. The emphasis is on like high trend clothes. So like these are clothes like this is the look, you know, that's in now and that that trend cycle like accelerates and accelerates and accelerates. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not just like this is what is trendy for fall. Like this is what is trendy like this week. The clothes are often made of synthetic fabrics, right? So um, this transition away from from cotton and other natural fabrics to these clothes that are that are made with some sort of synthetic material and that that made it cheaper to manufacture these clothes because it's manufacturing these synthetic materials isn't I guess cheaper to the consumer but you know has all these byproducts and the clothes like last less long so again it's like moving clothes from this category of something that you invest in to something that is sort of ephemeral or disposable like you were just saying so high trend synthetic materials oh and really cheap right so cheap just that they can be an impulse buy like it's not something that Mm -hmm. you're um you know weighing whether or not uh you can purchase it it's like the clothes are made fast they're for a fast trend cycle and you decide fast if you're going to purchase them or not it can be an impulse and and sometimes some of these stores would like purposefully stoke that sense of like I buy it now mm. even before the internet which has like all these uh tools built in to like spur us to to buy now but like a store like Zara would get new clothes every week or so and the clothes like wouldn't if they were out of stock they wouldn't often like restock them so it really trained mm. consumers like first of all to go back to the stores like a lot more often because there was always mm-hmm. something new. And then also if there was something that you liked, like you better buy it now because if it, it's going to be if, gone. Yeah. If it sells out, then you, you're not going to see it again. And so mm-hmm. um, sort of just doing everything they could to make fashion this, this thing that you felt good about just like purchasing mm-hmm. on a whim. It's important to say consumers love this in a way. And, and mm-hmm. also like, you could trace the heyday of Forever 21 to like years after the financial crisis, like that in 2008. Mm. That's when it's peaking. And I think it that makes a lot of sense, right? Like mm. the example I use in my piece, I think, is that if you are, if you have to go to a job interview, right? Like for a job yeah. that you don't have and you're unemployed, of course it makes sense to buy a, you know, a $13 blazer from Forever right. 21, Rather than, I have no idea how much like a fancy lady blazer costs, but it's definitely a lot more than $13. They were addressing a consumer desire for like trendy ephemeral things, sure, but they were also addressing a consumer base that was looking for a bargain. I think it's interesting that it was kind of birthed out of, maybe it was accentuated by crisis. And now it feels very much like the norm. It doesn't even feel abnormal to just be on my phone, see a ton of ads, scroll, scroll, scroll in literally two different clicks. I can have, you know, something purchased and shipped to my house. Your piece mentioned that, yeah, like the trends went from there is something new every season to something new every week, which is absolutely crazy. And it, even I feel it sometimes if I spend a lot of time on social media, this, instant gratification or like constant comparison 
kind of inside of you, right? Which I'm yeah. sure, I guess, the clothing brands maybe even want that. Yeah, it's fascinating just to think about just how many visual images we're exposed to mm. and we expose ourselves to every day. And I think that's, you know, we've talked about fast fashion, but in the piece, I sort of pivot from talking about that to talking about ultra fast fashion, which is, right. is, isn't is necessarily a new thing. It's just like all of those trends I was talking about, the clothes being uh, mm. fast, cheap, on trends, like all of those things take into put into hyperdrive. Right. And I think some of that is just the the way the internet and social media, the effect, the sort of acceleration effect mm. that they have on things. So all of that, that feeling of those feelings that you were talking about, I think are really just emphasized by the mm. by encountering encountering these clothes in this medium. When I was working on the piece, I was thinking how interesting it is to follow brands. I mean, I, I do this too. Actually, when I was writing this piece, I, I think I went through and like unfollowed all the brands that I follow. But um, and I was like, it's so funny because what that means is like on Instagram, if I'm following a brand, I've, I've got this feed, right? And it's like most of it is my friends or my family members. Mm -hmm. And then every now and then it's like a company comes in there. And of course, you know, I get the ads mm -hmm. anyway, but it, there was something about me sort of choosing to put this company in there, like alongside my, my friends and family. And, and their only purpose is to sell me things. And often they have like very beautiful feeds. That's why I was following them, right? They're like good at what they do. I think if you had explained that to me, like 10 years told me that I would be doing that, I would have, that would have seemed really improbable or like inane to me, but it's, it's what we're encouraged to do. And so just the, the exposure that we get. Yeah to ads and to, to new looks and to new styles. Right. It's really, it's just hard to even like overstate um, how much of that we're putting in our eyeballs every day. It really hits home when you said you're allowing that to be in your feed right alongside what your family and friends are posting. It makes it feel invasive, but you're allowing that to happen all at the same time. It's harder in some ways to critique a brand if it's if it's sort of positioning itself as your friend, right? But then all of this is like really new. That's the other thing to think about. Um, mm. Even like Forever 21 and that model was very new. And that wasn't that long ago. This new sort of internet accelerated ultra fast fashion and the way that we interact with brands and see clothing and, and think of clothing. Like that's also, it's really new. What do you think comes next? Oh my gosh. On one level, writing this story, I think, did put me a little bit in a state of, I don't want to say despair, <laughs> maybe melancholy, <laughs> I guess, um, right. because it really did seem like it's, it, it made me just realize how huge of an industry fashion is and how much it has capitulated to this faster, cheaper, more model if you look mm. at Zara, when they were adding, you know, like a couple hundred, you know, new styles a month, like that would be really exciting. Like that, you know, that was revolutionary. And now you have something like Boohoo wow. or ASOS and they're adding, you know, like thousands a day, which is just training, training us as consumers to always want more, right? And and also want cheaper. I mean, I feel this myself sometimes, like I, mm. I wrote this story and you know, then it's like, okay, I really should like, when I buy things, I really should like look at their 
labor practices and their sustainability practices. And then when you look at like ethically made clothes, you're like, damn, that's really expensive. I could get that, you know, I could get that at Boohoo for $10. And so it's, it's right. also like, it's hard to, for consumers, I think to pay more when we could pay less. I mean, like we're supposed to do it yeah. because it's, it's virtuous. Like that's, I don't know that it's tough to rely on individual decision-making. And then at the same time, like, you know, the idea of, regulation at a higher level like it's, I don't know it's like not looking good the UK where a lot of this started so boohoo which is like the big the biggest player in the ultra fast fashion game I think you would say they're a they're a UK company the UK is like ahead of the US in a lot of ways um in terms of putting sustainability things into place they convened like mm. a whole committee and like looked at the industry and and did some really good work really quantifying like what is the additional like waste put into the world by this like what are the labor practices yeah. what are the real problems here and and looked at the toll on on the environment and then their recommendations were like very simple things like what if we just added a, like a one penny tax to like fast fashion clothes that was put into environmental remediation and and none of it got mm. um actually put into law and there was also like a bill in California that was um, looking at garment workers and, and trying to like put in some put into place some better like wage protections and just better labor practices for them. And that also mm. didn't make it into law. And so I guess it still feels so if, if it's not going to change at the consumer level and it's not going to change at the policy level, then it's like, oh, no, but maybe we're just going to keep going faster, cheaper, faster, cheaper, mm. more, faster, cheaper, more forever. But then but then I get a little bit of hope because I think about how quickly this all was put into place in the first place. Mm. It hasn't always been this way. And that means it doesn't always have mm. to be this way. And I think that would require a lot of that would re would require like a lot of change from us as consumers. And it would require this like becoming an issue that legislators like really, you know, take a stand on. And those, those yeah. are tough things, but I do believe mm -hmm. that it's possible. You made a good point. It starts at the consumer level as I'm kind of piecing through, you know, how did we even get to this point? It was all by consumer demand. And I think more exposure is happening for, you know, exposing like negative practices and stuff like that and how important it is to, to, to consider, you know, if what you're buying, like where it's coming from, how it's made and stuff like that. But then I also see that big brands will advertise like one item that is made ethically and then like nothing else, you know, um, just to kind of make people think that, they're doing that across their company. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, totally. And honestly, I mean, this is tough to say, but I think only so much can be changed if we're looking at it from a like improved consumption um, mm. model, right? Because that's still truly, it seems to me that the problem is just that we're buying so many more clothes than we used to be. And I think if we keep buying um, at the rate that we're buying, but then everybody like promised to switch over to, you know, sustainable cotton or whatever, like H&M, I believe is promising to do, that really doesn't solve the problem at all. It's like so much of it mm. is, a, is a volume thing. We and I like very much include myself in this. Uh, we yeah. and I 
have too much stuff and buy too much stuff. And this is like such a bummer of a takeaway because it's a, it's a much more appealing, I guess, to think like, oh, we just need cool, new, sustainable fashion companies. And that's like, they're good. And I'm glad that they're out there and I buy things from them. I certainly do. It's just this idea of like, we just, we just have too much. And if we replace the too much with like more virtuous too muchness, it's a little bit better with like <laughs> too much itself is the problem. And I don't, I mean, I don't know what to do about that. I have so many clothes in my closet. I have so many clothes in my oh, closet. Yeah. It's like, it's like a bad habit. That's hard to break. You oh, know? totally. I mean, my friend said something really brilliant about this the other day that she was like, she was like, why am I buying so many clothes? She was thinking about like quarantine and it's, it's less so now, but she was like, why did mm. I buy so many clothes during this period when I couldn't go anywhere? And she was like, it was the only way to sort of, imagine something new happening it was like mm. you could get something new delivered to your house that's exciting yeah. and it, it was like a way of imagining an activity that she couldn't mm. participate in I was like oh you're right that's like that's what it felt like you know I'll I'll wear this yeah cute dress to like that summer party that I'll get to go to and <laughs> you know we were we were also like starved for stimulation and like dopamine and you know right. new visual stimulus and like I don't I, I have like a oh, lot yeah. of sympathy for all of us you know and, and that's why I do like I think it's good for individual consumers to question their role in this system and to be critical of it and to mm. demand change. You said in your article I think from what 2000 to 2015 or something like that where worldwide consumption had doubled which is like insane in such a quick amount of time, like you're saying. Can you just lay out like what are the costs? Like what are the what are the impacts here that we're looking at? And the, and the thing the thing that's interesting about that consumption doubling is that it's hard to find these statistics precisely, but we're basically spending the same amount of money on clothes as we did 15 years ago. And if you look at any like almost any other consumer category prices have gone up some in some cases have gone up mm. quite a bit but clothing prices have like gone down by half i mean that's huge so we just need to train our brains at a higher like set point because what we're paying mm. now is ridiculous and and i think like i said in the piece like that if you're getting something for really cheap that means the cost is being borne by usually by someone else somewhere else mm. um there's been a lot of really great reporting and there's like a book called Fashionopolis, which, which digs into this a little bit, just that some of the environmental costs. Um, it's hard mm -hmm. to even know where to begin, you know, like the making yeah. of these industrial, these like synthetic materials is done. Um, a lot of the production happening in China, which so you just have like these really massively polluted factory towns where the, the like chemicals used to, uh, produce the synthetic fabrics or to like make the distressed jeans, you know, going directly into the waterway and these like wildly elevated rates of cancer and other diseases. The labor issues involved, um, a lot of these clothes being made in Bangladesh. I mean, there was like a famous factory that collapsed and, and killed like, you know, close to a thousand people mm. who were garment workers. And, and uh, in some ways it was like even hard to, the fashion industry does relies on like a lot of contractors and subcontractors and sub subcontractors. So um, it was hard to even like trace back like who they were making clothes for. 
but I think it's, it was very clear that it was like almost all of the major retailers. Um, so people mm. just working in these incredibly abusive conditions. Then once the clothes are made at, at a great environmental cost and at a great human cost. And then oh, one thing to add there too is that increasingly these companies are shifting production. It's called nearshoring or onshoring. So they'll make them you know, in Europe, they'll make them in Spain or in Morocco and in the United States, they'll make them usually in LA. But there are big uh, labor issues there too, or Boohoo makes a lot of clothes in the UK. But there have been, you know, like many, many reports and investigations of um, these factories, uh, just domestic sweatshops, essentially, like people getting paid, you know, $2 an hour in very unsafe working conditions. So just because something was made in the US does not mean that it was made ethically. And then once... Once you've sort of bought the clothes, and like you said, there's this tendency to treat them disposably as if they're disposable. What do you do when you get rid of them? And this is, uh, you know, (laughs) when you go to a thrift store now, like the thrift stores are just like full of trashy synthetic clothes that are like, yeah, which is very disappointing. (laughs) So a lot of thrift stores won't take them. Um, In many cases, like there is this massive clothing um, like disposability industry. A lot of them get shipped off mm-hmm. um, to West Africa where, you know, there was like a, just like a mountain of synthetic clothes in Ghana, like outside the capital where they're just piling up. Um, you know, they're distorting like one problem, which I don't even get into in the articles. They're like distorting the local Econ- like fabric and clothing making economy. And then they're just like, right. you know, like you can't give them away. Like they're just trash clothes at this point. Like nobody wants them. And so they just sit in this landfill pile and they're synthetic. So it takes them forever to biodegrade. And this pile of clothes outside um, Accra has like caught on fire just because it's like, you know, all of these like flammable clothes from start to finish. It's like a very alarming industry in terms of like the costs that it's taking on like the humans who are producing them, the humans who have to live with them. And then all of us like living in an environment that is like shaped by industrial pollution. It's such a daunting issue when you lay it all out on the table. In fact, I think that's that there's more reason for people to care about it and Mm -hmm. be thinking like consciously what their role is in this because it's uh, such a tall task, right? Yeah. I think it's, it's important to like not turn away, I guess, is the thing. And even if, mm. even if it's a problem that I don't think that I know how to fix as an individual consumer, I think it's really, I'm really glad to know about it. And I'm mm. another trick that these companies will do, which I think is really insidious, is that they they will sort of like paper over some of their environmental and labor problems by um, talking a lot about body positivity. Um, And it's true that they like these companies do uh, a much better job at like serving a variety of sizes and like making cute, sexy clothes for like women of all shapes, you know, and I support that. I think that's great. But that doesn't like Mm -hmm. they somehow like act as if the the virtue of doing that um, lets them off Mm -hmm. the hook for all of their other troubling practices that they have. And I think it's, it just, as consumers, we just have, I think we owe it to ourselves and to like future generations to, um, to pay attention, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. We can't do anything or at least decide what to do until we know, to your point, doing the research and really looking at like, where are my clothes coming from? What is 
what is my stake in the game in this is kind of the first step. You know, this podcast is all about creating community, right? So we're kind of taking a, a step back and saying, how does something like the fashion industry, how does that play in fostering a better community for us now in the future? What are your thoughts on that? There is something wonderful about clothes, and I don't want that to get like lost in all of this despair right. talk because I think they can be really, they're like fun. They're a form of self-expression. They can mm. be like such a way to bring delight to your own day and other people's day. Mm. Um, one of the other insidious things that's that seems out there right now is this message that like you can only wear your clothes once, right? You can only post yourself in one an outfit once and then it's like you got to move on to the next outfit. How, right. you know, God forbid you're, you're seen twice in the same thing. And I think that's that's something that I think that's something that we really can as a community like change that trope that sense. Mm. Um, it's like that's just not mm. true. And I and and we're we are seeing I think there are young influencers who are spending a lot more time like talking about how to make creative outfits from thrift store finds and how to wear one thing in multiple different ways and that are mm. just like reshaping the way that we think about these things. And I do think that we as just participants in this world of social media, like have the ability to um, like change the vibe basically. And we may not be able to change, you know, the like supply chain issues, but we can change like what is seen as like cool or, you know, like, fun or accessible or acceptable and wear Mm. your outfits more than once and post yourself wearing them. That's, (laughs) that's your activism, but it's true. You know, it really does. It just like changes what's what people think is normal and cool. Right. Changing the perception. I love that. I love that. I think, I think that's such a practical way. Right. And then you, I think you do a wonderful job of weighing like, what this looks like on a very personal and micro level, and then kind of zooming out and looking at globally what the issue is. And then I think only then people can kind of assess it. And like you said, take steps at whatever level that looks like to, to make it better in their own world. Uh, Rachel, thanks so much for being on the Reside podcast. I think that this is just such an important thing to talk about. And I just really appreciate all the work that you've done to dive into what this looks like and for just for sharing your space with us today. Yeah, it was such a pleasure to talk about. Um, It's obviously something I'm still, you know, trying to wrap my head around. So it's always useful to like have more conversations. I think it it always makes me feel like I'm getting a little bit closer to something. Yeah, I love it. Very different than true crime as well. So (laughs) guys, what a way to kick off the mini series. I don't know about you, but I am sometimes tempted to turn away from issues that seem either out of my control or too big to where I can truly make a difference. But I also think that's why conversations like this are all the more important to challenge us as we continue to analyze this idea of what building a better community around us looks like in both the big things and the small everyday things. We're going to continue to dive deeper into this. We have two episodes left of the three-part mini-series, each taking a different look at consumer choice in building a better community. 
As always, guys, I would love to hear from you. You can reach out to me on Instagram at Reside Podcast or follow me on Twitter as well. Tell me how the show has impacted you and most importantly, leave me any feedback that you feel would help make the show better. And if you haven't already, be sure to rate the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps build podcast cred. It's like street cred, but you know, for podcasts. And it in turn helps others find the show too. If you're feeling extra bold, leave a comment. That would be just so incredibly meaningful to me. Guys, thank you for listening to the show today. I hope it leaves you feeling challenged and encouraged to create community in your own space. Know that I'm cheering you on in that. The podcast has a new episode every other Wednesday. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss a show. The next episode is releasing on Wednesday, July 28th, and we're continuing our mini-series. Guys, if you thought today's episode was good, we are just getting started. It's going to be so fun. Until then, y'all, I hope you have a wonderful week. Goodbye.